Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As we emerge from the pandemic, bookstores across the country are beginning to host in person author events. And last week, we at Books and Books were treated to a reading and conversation with the remarkable Douglas Stewart. Douglas, the author of the Booker Award-winning Shuggy Bain and the just-published Young Mungo, reminded me of just how much we've missed because of COVID. His warmth, his brilliance, and his steadfast reaffirmation for the resilience of human spirit still linger in the room where he appeared. As one woman said to me as she was leaving, with a signed book in hand, this was the best, the very best. So how could I not bring that evening to all of you, the listeners of The Literary Life? Douglas was in conversation that evening with book reviewer and writer Connie Ogle of the Miami Herald. Books and Books is no more than the people who are the wonderful booksellers who make up Books and Books, right? And so, Shuggy Bain came to our attention through uh, one of the great booksellers that we have here at the bookstore. You don't always see her here. Uh, she is our head buyer. Uh, her name is Gael, and I always butcher her last name, so I'm not going to say it. Um, she, I always get a look. It's uh, Gael Lalamere, Lalamere, and I know her as Gael. And Gael uh, read Shuggy Bain early, early, early on, and just fell in love with it. Told all of us about it. We all fell in love with it, and we were all so wonderfully pleased to see the incredible success that it had. And now we get to present him tonight uh, with Young Mungo. And to do the introduction, please give a very warm welcome to that very special bookseller, Gael. So good evening and thank you for coming. This is a very special and long overdue evening with Douglas Stewart. Um, we're here to sing the praises of young Mungo, but I have to mention Shuggy because I have been a very big fan of Douglas since those first few pages of Shuggy Bane. And I remember seeing the galley on my desk, I think it was summer of 2019, and it had no cover, no nothing, just the name and the title. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's a funny title. 
Um, so I Googled him and I realized that I actually uh, used to work with his husband 20 years ago at the Museum of Modern Art. So that was like a huge kind of sign to me that this was meant to be. Um, and I think we may actually have met 20 years ago and maybe don't remember, maybe a, a couple cocktails <laughs> might have been involved. Uh, Shugi had a rough road at first. Uh, he, uh, Shugi Vane was published in uh, February of 2020. And as the world was shutting down, Shuggy and Agnes were making their, you know, their way onto the stage. Um, but no worries, a few months later, Shuggy Vane was long-listed, short-listed, won numerous awards, the, the Booker Prize as well. And now we have Young Mungo, a beautiful, beautiful book, a bit of a departure from Shuggy uh, in that uh, it's quite suspens suspenseful. Um, and it, it has, there are chapters that just had me on the edge of my seat and there's this unimaginable cruelty, but as well as this incredible amount of tenderness and, um, and as always the humor that gets us through all of it. Um, so Ron Charles of the Washington Post wrote earlier this month, young Mungo seals it, Douglas Stewart is a genius. Uh, Maureen Corrigan writes, Young Mungo is a suspense story wrapped around a novel of acute psychological observation. It's hard to imagine a more disquieting and powerful work of fiction will be published any time soon about the perils of being different. And tonight, Douglas is in conversation with our very own Connie Ogle. Uh, Connie is the former book, former book editor and film critic at the Miami Herald, and she continues to write uh, for the Miami Herald on cultural issues. And she is the reader we all look up to. A rumor has it she reads 150 books a year. Um, in her review of Young Mungo for the Star Tribune, she writes, the language is gorgeous, poetic, expertly evoking the dour streets of Glasgow and its people. Stewart shows us so much ugliness, but he offers a promise of hope too. This book will hurt your heart, so reach for that hope. Sometimes it's all we can do. So without further ado, I want to welcome Douglas Stewart and Cody Ogle. Welcome to Miami. Is this your first time here? This is my first time in about 20 years, so yeah, thank you. And this is probably a little bit better than the tour for your first book, which <laughs> didn't really happen too much. It was me and my dog, yeah. <laughs> she was sick of me. Um, so you're going to read a little bit. Uh, we'll start with you reading, and then we'll talk a bit, and then you're going to read a little more. So this actually comes quite early in the book. Our protagonist is called Mungo, and he's named after the patron saint of Glasgow. But he's quite a lonely young man, and he's growing up in the east end of Glasgow. And one day he comes across a ducat, uh, which is a dovecote or a columbarium, uh, which is built on some public land, and he meets another young man. The boy had not seen Mungo, or he had seen him and he didn't care. His face was turned to the sky, watching pigeons glide above the tenements. Something in the clouds caught his eye, and he disappeared inside his tower. There were heavy footsteps on the ladder as the skylight slid open and he poked out of the roof like the captain of a wooden submarine. He was cradling something in his large hands. Mungo watched him caress it, whisper gently to it, and bring it to his lips for a kiss. 
he threw it into the sky, and a pale pigeon fluttered away over the slate roofs of the housing scheme. Whoop, whoop, whoop. He was cooing after the bird. His little bird whirled over the sandstone. It followed the other birds, and they dipped for a moment out of sight. When Mungo looked back towards the ducat, the boy was still hanging out of the skylight, but now he was glowering down at him. The boy dropped back inside. He came out of the low door and started striding towards Mungo. How long are you going to sit there? He asked abruptly. Mungo could see the strength of his face now. He had muscles that ran from under his broad cheekbones down to his jaw, and while he waited for an answer, uh, they moved and pulsed with life. What's it to you? He was brave and maybe a little stupid. His nose was still tender from Hamish, and this boy was a good head taller than him. But what had looked northern and hale now puckered in uncertainty, and the boy looked his age again. His mouth was shaped like a wide bow, his teeth were large and white, but spread at intervals. It's just if my hen sees you sitting there, he motioned to the missing pigeon. You might scare her off and she will only come back. But how can a bird be frightened of me? The boy worried the sky. He seemed conflicted. It would be mean-spirited to ask a stranger to leave and that didn't seem in his nature. Listen, could you just hold still? Put that book away. The flap of the pages might frighten it. Mungo nodded and closed his book. The boy beamed down at him with relief. He was funny looking. Gappy teeth, sticky out ears and a bent Roman nose. But when he smiled he was disarming. There was something uncomplicated about him. And as his eyes returned to the sky, the smile never left his lips, and Mungo found himself staring. It seemed like this boy could not have spent a day on the same streets that Mungo knew, never needed any of its callous posturing, the self-protective swagger, the dirty promise of hitting first. There was nothing guarded or fearful about him. Mungo couldn't help but smile back up at him. So this book is about two boys who fall in love. It's about other things too, but I just, could you hold up the, this can, is fast. Can I do this in Florida? You, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody tell the cops on me, but that, yeah. That's the UK version. This is the American version. Mm. We were not deemed <laughs> able to handle that. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, it's actually a very famous photograph. It's by um, a photographer called Wolfgang Tillmans, who has won the Turner Prize. I mean, he's a very esteemed photographer. And it was a photo that was taken in 2002. And when I saw it, uh, I was much younger then. It just really spoke to me because I rarely saw depictions of a very normal thing, two men that are fully dressed kissing. But when it was first displayed in the Whithorn Art Gallery out in Seattle, I think it is, it was actually torn by the, from the wall. Someone went into the gallery and took it down and ripped it to shreds. And when I was thinking about what I wanted on the cover of my book, I felt like the characters were so brave. They were so proud in their love for one another that I felt as an author I had to also answer that and, and, and show my bravery. It took you, you, you've said before, it took you about 10 years of working on Shuggy. Yeah. And then two years later, you come out with a new book. <laughs> Tell us what it was like to write Young Mongo sort of in the shadow of Shuggy and all the success you had with it. Yeah, so it's it's funny because everyone thinks I wrote Young Mungo in two years, and the truth is, is I began Young Mungo in 2016. And to tell you about that, I have to tell you a little bit about myself and about and about Shuggy. So I was uh, working when I began writing Shuggy as a fashion designer. 
designer. Um, I had been a fashion designer for uh, about 20 years and books were something that came to me later in life. I grew up in quite an impoverished community in Glasgow and we didn't really turn to literature. Literature didn't ever turn to us. But I was writing Shaggy Bane, and at the time, when I began it in 2008, I didn't know that it would ever become a book. I took it sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. But the problem with that, when you do that, is you end up with an 1,800-page first draft. And that's what I got. I got this monster that was, when the two legal binders were about this thick across, when you put them together. And I turned to my poor husband. I, I don't have an MFA. I didn't have a circle of writer friends. So what I did have was a poor put-upon husband, um, which is worth any circle of writer friends. And I said to him, please, will you read this? You know, will you read this thing that I've written? I don't quite know what it is. And he went, yeah, okay. Um, and I gave him four hours. And then I came back and I said, are you done? And he said, I'm not done. Like that. And in fact, it took him about seven months to read this draft, and, and I nagged him all the way through it. And the poor guy was the only person who actually ever read Shaggy Bane before, even in the 10 years of working on it, before my, my agent read it. And he worked on the first draft and, and gave me some edits, and he's really thoughtful at first about metaphor, about the world I'm building, about the characters, and then about page 200, the will to live just leaves his body. And you can see it, you can just see it on the page evaporate, like he just wants, me to die and and so he starts to redact the manuscript with a black sharpie it goes from this very fine pen work to just a black sharpie and he writes the wildest things in the margins he writes oh stop it a lot <laughs> or he writes he gives me three exclamation points which just means this is great keep going, keep going. um but you know after about seven months of work he comes back to me with these two legal binders and he hands them to me and I don't speak to him for seven weeks. We do not talk inside the marriage because I felt so violated. I'd asked him and I'd nagged him. And then I suddenly thought, oh, you've touched my baby. You've, you've done this. So, so anyway, I worked on Shuggy for about eight years, but it, I didn't know if it would ever be published. And, and certainly it had a rough road to publication, never mind the pandemic. But in 2008, I began Shuggy. In 2016, I began Young Mungo, which is still four years before Shuggy is ever published. And in a way, he was like having another kid that was very certain of who he was going to be and very certain of what he, he was going to tell us. He just needed Shuggy to stop needing me a minute. And so he kind of burst out at me in 2016. It is like having a second kid. Then, it's right? like, yeah. And they're like brothers because I, I think of them as boys almost or, or a journey into manhood. There's a cycle here for me. Um, you know, there's, a, there's looking at queerness as it intersects with poverty. Yeah, there are there are similarities in the books and in, in the setting, the time frame, uh, but they're very different books. Although they're both books that are to me were love stories. Shuggy, a, a boy and his mom, and then this Mungo and James. You draw on your childhood for both of these books. Uh, what are the good parts of that, and what are some of the perils of that? Do people confuse you with your characters? Do you feel that you are your characters? Do you, you know, how do you handle that? There's, autobiograph there's autobiographical traces in both books. It's really complicated. When I first published Shuggy Bain in the United States, right before the pandemic, the very first question that a journalist asked me, because I write a lot about, there was a tradition for lower income communities in Scotland that um, 
it was actually a very harmful tradition where dentists and doctors didn't think we could take care of ourselves. And so they often took out all of our teeth when we were young. And sometimes it was a wedding gift for women. Sometimes it was just because we weren't treated the same way that middle class people would be. I do not have false teeth, but I write a lot about characters with false teeth. And the very first thing a journalist asked me is, so do you have false teeth? And it did a really strange thing to me as a writer because I thought, oh, I don't want to share anything personal with the world because I felt quite invaded by the question. The, the journalist was really harmless. Um, but I spent the first five months of the book just saying, no, I'm only a writer and I'm writing about the other. I'm writing about this family, this character, this life that I, have, I know nothing about. But if any of you have something in your life that you've kept concealed for a long time or if you've been dealing with queerness or you've been dealing with anything and you've never been able to like live your entire truth or just be honest with the world you'll know how exhausting it is and I got to a point about five months in where I didn't know what I'd said to people and what I hadn't but the truth is is I did draw on a lot of my own personal life for Shuggy Bane and for Young Mungo Young Mungo's further into the, the realm of fiction. But I am not Shuggy, and my mother isn't Agnes. These are really characters of fiction. But I grew up as poor as Shuggy. I grew up in a city, and my community was decimated under Thatcherism. I was queer, and I was bullied for that since I was uh, really small. And then I'm the son of a beautiful single mother, but my mother suffered with addiction from my earliest memories until she died of it one day when I was 16. And it's that grief and loss that's at the heart of my, my writing. And and so I had to share that. And the strange thing is, as soon as you share it, it, it deepens. Your myth becomes something that you can't quite control, right? And you can't ever say to a reader, although I had lived a very similar life to Shuggy, you know, this scene that happens to Shuggy is not my life. And I found it really hard to put things back in the box after it came out. But for the most part, it's been really rewarding um, because... Part of the reason why I wanted to write Connie was I felt like men especially have a lot of silence around trauma, especially West of Scotland men or men from a working class background. We're always taught never to share it, you know, just conceal our emotions and conceal our pain. And I found it in many ways to be really liberating to write the book. Um, and I found it brought a lot of people into my life that had also gone through similar things. And that connection was quite lovely. Is that why you started writing in the first place? Because like you said, you had this career in the fashion industry um, and that was going well for you. But what was it, is that what drove you? Like this was something that needed to come out to, to write in the first place? I think so, because actually I did it without thought. I, it was, there was no conscious thought of what I was trying to achieve because I was only really writing. And what it was was a compulsion. I, I had to. And, and even though I was working 70, 80 hours a week in fashion, I was desperate to get back to the page. And so even if I only got 30 minutes a week or I could only write on the subway on the way to work in the morning, that's what was sustaining me and keeping me alive. But I think what I was, I was doing lots of things and it's hard to psychoanalyze. Um, you know, having lost my mother at 16, I lost the person I loved the most and I lost her without ever being able to understand her fully. I would like to have known her as an adult, as a woman, as, you know, a friend and a foe and a daughter her in her own right. And I think oftentimes when you don't get that adult relationship with your parent, then they're kind of cauterized just as your mother, just as this one relationship. And so in creating this fictional world and these fictional characters, it was a chance for me to to imagine you know, what it might have been like, imagine what uh, a woman like that might have gone through. And that I found incredibly cathartic and soothing. But 
it was also, I was really homesick. I mean, I've lived in New York since 2000, but I'm from Glasgow. My family still live on the streets that I write about. And I was just really homesick. I wanted to create this time in the place. Because actually, it was a remarkable time in a really proud city's history. There's two storylines in the book, if you haven't read it. And one is taking place as, as James and Mungo meet and fall in love. And the other is taking place several months afterwards. And the amount of tension in this book is crazy. It, and I've already yelled at Douglas uh, that I sat and read it and couldn't put it down. And I thought about cheating ahead because I couldn't stand to not know what was happening. Um, but one of the things that's really that really struck me about young Mungo is, is Mungo lives in a world where violence is always, it always seems possible. And it's looming and it's out there and you you know, he never knows where he's gonna, where it's gonna come from. You know, it could be his brother, mm -hmm. could be some of the other boys. Is that something you felt growing up, or is that something, you know, just you imagined? Yeah, I was always performing my masculinity as a young man, and and I lived in a place where masculinity was quite narrow. Not even for gay men, but for heterosexual men, you had to be a very certain type of man from the communities I came from. You had to be hard working and hard drinking when you got to that age. You had to like football. You had to, you really sort of hold on to your emotions. And and I really tried to run with that as a, as a young guy and, and tried to fit in. I chased a lot of girls. They were very lovely girls, but girls chasing wasn't my thing. I, I fought in a lot of gangs. I did a lot of things just to be, you know, I was always that kid that tried to get close enough to get a participation medal to the group of lads, but far enough away because actually I was a colossal coward. And it just wasn't naturally in me. But, you know, there is that sort of upholding of a system when you have men like that. And when also the world that you know is only these few streets, you don't see much of the rest of the city or much of the rest of the country or the world. And the truth is, is Glasgow is an enormously diverse city. It has extreme wealth. It has some of the oldest universities in the world. It's beautiful. But I grew up in a, what you would call a project, what I call a housing scheme. And so I never even saw the West End of the city till I was 19. I didn't know this world existed. And part of it was socioeconomic, but the other part was psychological. What calls you to these neighborhoods? What, why do you go? What is a cappuccino? You know, what are these things? I didn't know any of it. And I didn't know how to be. And actually, it was only when I met Americans and when I met English people as adults, and I would say to them, what do you like to do? when you come to Glasgow. They'd be like, oh, we like to go there. They showed me my own city. And so the boys are part of this. And as you said, Mungo's eldest brother is the local gang leader. Um, and he's quite a dangerous man. No offense to any of my short kings in the audience, but he's quite a short man. He's 5'2". Um, he has quite thick Coke bottle glasses. And his mechanism for dealing with this is violence is his answer always and the first time he hits before anyone hits him but also before there's any other option and he's a terrifying brother to be around but he's controlling the masculine tone in in mungo's world and mungo's just trying to keep up one of the things that has really drawn me to your books is the compassion you have for the characters that aren't shuggy that aren't mungo that uh like the compassion for Agnes in Shuggy is, is so great. I mean, my heart bled for her, even as she was doing things that were bad, mm -hmm. or, or not, you know, not at for her children's best interests. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? About how how you create that compassion, even for characters that that maybe aren't perfect. 
Yeah, I, I think there's something in Glasgow about how you, you're raised to understand that you never know somebody's story, that everybody has a story. And when you think you've got a bead on someone, you're reminded that you don't know what they've gone through or, or where they've come from, really. And I think that's compounded by the fact for anyone that's ever loved someone with addiction. You know, certainly when it's a parent, it's the person you love most in the world that you are raised to think of as the most wonderful person. You know, you think, especially there's a myth around the, the Celtic mammy, you know, the Irish mammy or the Scottish mammy. She can do no wrong. She's such a wonderful woman. And yet when the person you love the most and you would never want to see hurt is also the person who is hurting you the most because of addiction, you start to learn how complex from the point of being four or five, how complex human nature is. You can see how it can contain multitudes and how it can contain enormous contrasts in humanity. And that, as a kid, is such an important lesson, right? Because you see all the wonderful things that someone can be, but you also see how a context or a situation can inform human behavior. And certainly when a, when a community goes through 26% unemployment, 22 to 26% unemployment, and it stays there for my entire childhood, you can see how good people can be altered by circumstances. And you can also see how bad people are not beyond redemption. You can see a person is not just who they are, it's also what they're always reacting to. And so I try to bring that to my writing. I try to resist easy tropes or characters that are just all good or characters that are just all evil. And in fact, there's some bad men in this book. And I found that on the first couple of drafts of writing them, that they were only bad. And as only bad, they were dull um, and they were expected. And I thought, even bad people maybe they're hurt and they're causing hurt for other people, but where does their hurt come from? And I couldn't quite, um, I couldn't rest until I discovered what had made these men the men that they were. I've had people say to me, well, those books are going to be sad. I, I don't want to be sad. And there's sad things that happen in both books. Um, but do you see these as sad books or do you see them as hopeful. I hope my books are full of life is the is the really the most important thing with all of it. And I think art's only obligation is to move us. And however that art moves us, whether it makes us reflect on our own lives, whether it makes us tense, makes us laugh or makes us feel fearful for the characters is is the is the the job of a book, you know. As before I'm a writer, I'm a reader, and what I want when I close the last page on any book is to think, God, don't go, don't go, don't leave me. Um, I want characters to stay with me. I want their lives to run through my mind. I want to feel drenched in an experience. And that's really it. So I hope my books are sad and funny and <laughs> hopeful and hopeless and anything you want them to be. I just want them to be life. I think you've succeeded at that. <laughs> um, would you ever write a sequel to Young Mungo? You know, I'm, I think I'm building a universe because no readers have noticed something I've done. Very few readers notice something I've done in Young Mungo. But these lives are interweaving and they're, they're glancing against each other. And um, I didn't want to come back with Young Mungo because you said Shuggy was a book about love. And Young Mungo is a book about love too. But I didn't want Shuggy's love affair with his mother to have any sort of outside influence. That was I wanted the purity of that relationship. You know, it's filial love, and I think that's a really powerful love. And then I knew as soon as I finished Shuggy that I wanted to write about queer love. I wanted to write about finding love because I hadn't found it myself in my community. Um, I hadn't found it 
uh, as a young boy because there was no visibility when I was growing up. You know, this was under Thatcher's Section 28 when you weren't allowed to talk about any kind of alternate queerness. I know you're living through this right now. Um, I mean, history echoes, right? It might not repeat itself, but it, it rings uh, pretty loud over time. But it was also a time when there was no positive representations on the media for young queer people. It was under the fear of AIDS. And when you are working class or when you're poor and you're also queer, the consequences are just enormously different. You don't have that mobility. You can't become a sexual exile. You can't run away to New York or to Paris or to Edinburgh or to whatever it is. You have to face your, your reality in the community that you're in. And this is what this book is about. It's about Mungo and James who break two huge taboos. First of all, they're two men who fall in love with each other. But then Mungo is Protestant and James is Catholic. Ooh, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I'd so like to stack it up. Just yeah. one, th one, one thing's not enough for my characters. They've got to survive it all. It seems to me this is a really important time for uh, queer voices to be heard. Uh, everybody here knows what's going on in this state. I don't have to go over it. Um, do you feel that uh, queer voices are being heard more than they were? Um, what's, your, what's your take on that? What's your impression? I think we have a long way to go with queer voices. Uh, we are just beginning to see the spectrum of them and the spectrum of queer experience. Because the truth is, is a lot of what I write about is writing against the grain of what I grew up reading. I found all the stories I read about that were queer when I was a young man, when I think about Hollinghurst, or I think about Baldwin, or I think about uh, Jeanette Winterson. I think about all these voices that I love, but often there was a certain amount of privilege in the stories. People were in Paris, or they were in the Berlin years between the war, or Alan Hollinghurst was in a boarding school, or he was behind these sort of private clubs. What's good now is we have a, a panorama of queer voices. We have so much optimism. We have so many different stories to be told. But one of the things we're doing as a queer community is we're erasing a lot of stories. We're forgetting our history really quickly. And I think we're in sometimes in such a rush to tell positive, optimistic, inclusive stories that we sometimes forget the pain that happened in people's lifetimes. We've, we've come so far so quickly. We still have a long way to go. But we forget how hard it was just 20 years ago. Would you like me to read now? Okay, let's try this. Um, having met the young men now, are they're both in their own ways motherless sons, but they're motherless sons for different reasons. Uh, Mungo's mother is a bit of a rascal. She's a bit of, she is a young mother who has raised her three children, and she's not had much love in her life, and so she's keen to get the children to grow up so that she can get back out into the world. James's mother is lost to him. Um, he's lost her through uh, disease. And the young men are having a sleepover, and they're just getting to know each other. They are not yet lovers. James's bedroom was a mess. The walls were thick with posters pinned layer upon layer. Clothes, clean and dirty, lay in heaps on the floor. In the corner of the room was a pile of old canary cages modified to transport pigeons. Above these was a twitcher's map of Scotland, lochs and hillsides in glorious detail. Each glen filled in with the type of bird an enthusiast could expect to find there. James had circled some far-flung places to disappear to. The boys lay together, with James facing upwards and Mungo with his head at James's feet, head to toe in the single bed. They took great pains not to touch. If one moved his leg too close, the other shifted and hung off the side of the narrow mattress. What's your maw like? asked James in the darkness. 
It was a hard thing to describe. You only got one, mother. It didn't bear a comparison, and she didn't come with a list of features like a new oven. I don't know. She's just my ma. Mungo had never considered it before. He could hear James picking an old sticker from his headboard. Does she like to dance? Aye. Does she like to sing? More so when she's drunk. Mungo's eyes were open in the darkness. The room looked strange and somehow familiar. He would have thought a Catholic's bedroom would have been bare, or perhaps with crucifixes everywhere, but there were none. He kept expecting to roll over and see Hamish eating cereal in his bed. My sister says she's not a mother at all. She says we were just a mistake that happened to a stupid young lassie and that she's regretted it ever since. After my dad died, Momo decided she was going to put herself first. That's not what mammies are supposed to do. Well, that's another thing Jodie says. Mungu didn't want to talk about them anymore. What was yours like? Oh, she was the business, James said very quickly. Even when she was really sick, she pretended like she wasn't. Every day I came home from school, she wouldn't let me out of her hug until I told her everything that had happened. If Geraldine got home after me, she had to wait in line for her hug. It could take pure ages. My mammy called it the juicing. She said if she didn't hold us tight, we would ignore her. So she squeezed us as hard as she could to get all of the good stuff out of us. She wouldn't let us go until you tell her absolutely everything. That sounds nice. Aye, it was. James coughed like there was a clog in his throat and Mungo could tell he was breathing deeply to keep himself from crying. Mungo didn't know what to do. He reached out a hand and felt the sharpness of James's shin bone. He made a fist and tapped along the bone, up and down, up and down, the way a doctor would probe a fracture. He waited for James to pull away, but he didn't, and Mungo folded first. He drew back his hand and he laid it in the centre of his chest. You have, to, you have to stay there, I've been informed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we have to do this, This is because everything's working right now. Um, I feel like Hillary Clinton. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the pantsuit. <laughs> um, Moma is a very interesting character, Mungo's mother to me. And she, in these books, is talk about um, the sort of the plight of women that were stuck in these... Uh, situations where their husband was gone, uh, they were stuck with kids, they didn't have any way to make a living. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and tell us, you know, wh why that's such an important part of your both of your books? Yeah, I, you know, I was on stage with Edward Louis in uh, in Belgium recently, and uh, we were talking to a crowd, and halfway through it, the the interlocutor just said to us, "You sound like men that are both trying to understand your mother." And I think that's really true. I think part of the reason why I wrote Shuggy Bain was to try and understand this woman that I had lost. But one of the things I came to understand is even though I was orphaned at 16 and even though I was the first in my family to finish high school, I was still a man. And I had opportunities that just weren't available to my own mother through time and through place. And 
I had to go back and really think, you know, what happens when you're a 14, 15-year-old girl that leaves school and goes straight to work and then marries the man that's nice to you and then you have kids and you're told that if you have a little house and you have these kids and you marry this man that you'll get everything in life. What happens if you have more dreams than that or more things to expect? And then what happens if that man leaves you and your family starts to come apart and the city starts to come apart? What opportunities do you have? You know, I would turn to drink. I would turn to drink if I felt that hemmed in. And so when I write characters like Agnes or I write characters like Momo, I have to reckon with you know what their reality is. And I don't think we can truly actually judge them as people unless you consider what they're also facing in that way. And so that was one of the catharsis, the cathartic moments that I got from writing Shuggy Bane. And I tried to carry that through to Momo. One of the things that really gets my hackles up, and thank you for not doing it, is when people say, you know, when they write a synopsis of the book, they say, the alcoholic mother. And I've always tried to resist that because I think we really quickly put labels on people with addiction and we really do it with women. And the truth is, is Agnes Bain and Maureen Hamilton are, couldn't be more different as women. They're, they're, they're fundamentally like hugely different human beings. And the only thing that they really share together is that they drink too much, both of them. Now, that's because that's part of my formative years, and I'm still wrangling with that. I find it fascinating. I find it a really worthy human condition to write about. But I, it's also something that was rife in my community, like any community that is abandoned. If you think about Appalachia, if you think about Pittsburgh, it, you know, addiction wasn't just inside my home. It was inside my community, and there was many kids. I tried to do that with Shuggy Bain, where you keep zooming out, and you see Annie, or you see Leanne, and you see all these people going through it, because actually the truth is, is we weren't a middle-class family that were having a tough time on a lovely road. We were people who felt very abandoned by hope, and so people were, were escaping that in just about any way they could. What have you learned about addiction through writing these books? and creating these characters? Oh, so much. I mean, this could be my TED talk for <laughs> if you want to stay for another couple of hours. You know, one of the things that I learned that really helped to um, bring me a little bit of peace is I was, you know, there was a real terror to alcoholism when I was a kid. Um, I learned a bunch of things. Let me tell you what I learned about my family. The first thing I learned was as I hadn't understood how a tide can rise around someone, and before they know it, you can really be out to sea and it can be a very slow process. When I wrote the first draft of Shuggy Bane, something bad happened to Agnes and Agnes turned to the bottle. It was like a very dramatic arc, you know, this was a cause and effect thing. And when I went back and I spoke to friends of my family and when I spoke to my family about my mother, I was always so angry and I would wanted to know like, when did she, when did you know she had a drink problem? When did you know this person had a drink problem? And the answer I always got is, oh, we didn't, we didn't see it, we didn't know. And the truth is, is someone was in trouble for a long time before we, we noticed it. It's not this, often in literature you'll see something bad happen, or a movie, something happens and then the person goes straight to the bottle. And sometimes, you know, especially in communities that have a lot of alcohol, the line between a good time and a bad time can be really hard to distinguish. Some people can really be suffering for a long time. And so that was the first thing, and I had to totally rewrite the book with that in mind because I'd gotten it wrong in the first draft. The second thing that I came to learn is children of addiction, I think, think that somebody's problem is they're, is they're somehow responsible for it, right? And if you can be quieter or better at school or neater or f funnier, you can somehow alter this parent's 
thing with addiction. It's got nothing to do with you. It's really got nothing to do with you. It's a struggle that's all entirely inside that person. And actually writing Agnes's journey and how she wins and how she loses helped me really to come to terms with that. Because I knew it, I just didn't really deeply believe it until I wrote the book. You have a brother and a sister in Scotland. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you talk about this? Do you talk about... Like, do you have, is there some kind of family consensus about what you we went through? There is. The fascinating thing is, is I'm the baby of the family. And so my, my siblings were born when my mother was in her early 20s. And then I came almost when she was heading towards 40. And when a mother has three children, she has three different children. She can see that very clearly. But sometimes you can have three different mothers um, because you intersect with a person at different stages of their life and they have different hopes and dreams. And so my siblings were out of the house by the time my mother really collapsed under addiction. And so it was a very personal relationship we had with them. But beyond addiction, one of the things that the book did for my family is is I realize Shuggy Bain is bullied for being queer at school. He's bullied, you know, he's, he's not even queer. That's a word that would, he didn't even know or have access to. He was bullied for being effeminate. You know, the, the, the bullying he, he, he suffers is a form of misogyny in a way, directed at men because they have feminine traits. And that was a part of my life from when I was about six years old. You know, I had no sexual desire at six. I had no concept of gender. I just liked ponies and skipping elastics and uh, these different things that boys just weren't allowed to like. And the other boys noticed it about me and the question was, is what, what's wrong with you? You know, you're no right. But it was such a time of limited visibility. It was such a time where the government had really abandoned us for queerness. And I had no concept that there was anywhere I could turn to say, this is happening to me. You know, can you help me? Because it felt like everybody in some way was involved in holding up a homophobic system, I guess. I could even sense that, at, you know, at six years old. And so I never told my family I was bullied at school. And so my sister, when she read the book, she said, God, I hope nothing like that happened to you with Shuggy Bain. And I thought, oh God, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> and I did, and I didn't tell my family because I was so fearful that if I, I'm being bullied, why are you being bullied? Well, they say I'm a poof, they say I'm gay. Are you? Well, I don't know, maybe. And then they would have rejected me too. Now, of course, they never would have. But I didn't know that at seven years old, you know? And so what I did was I, I bought it myself. Uh, your, your family has read Shuggy? Yeah. And how do they feel about it? They feel um, so super proud. I, I told this to actually the Duchess of Cornwall, our future queen of the United <laughs> Kingdom, but this might not translate, so just laugh to be kind if, it's, uh, if it doesn't translate. But the night that I won the Booker, you know, um, I called my big sister in Glasgow and I said, sis, sis, I've won the Booker, I've won the Booker. And she went, oh, that's great. You know, I tried to return a top to Primark today and they wouldn't take it back. <laughs> and so my family went straight from like winning the biggest prize in the English-speaking world to like, yeah, but about me. And uh, and I told the Duchess of Cornwall this. I told a member of the royal family we spent an hour together. And I said that and she kind of just went really quiet for a moment. And I thought, oh, I'm about to be escorted out of the palace. <laughs> and, and then she started to laugh and she said, families have a wonderful way of keeping us grounded. And I thought... <laughs> I thought they're literature connecting us. We both we both know what that means. Is it is it odd to talk about these issues of of poverty uh, with people that have a lot of money? It's wild. It's really wild. Uh, but I mean, that's literature, right? You 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 write so people can put their feet in other people's shoes, and sometimes 
people are like, what are those shoes? And then sometimes other people are like, oh, these shoes feel really comfortable to me. And I can't control that as a writer. That you you just have to do it. It's why we all do it. But most people, you know, have had some of the most fulfilling experiences in America with the book. I went to Pittsburgh, I went to an inner city school, and the kids, without even perhaps knowing where Glasgow was on a map, understood profoundly what this family and this community was going through, you know? We were separated by geography and time and and 40 years, and sometimes it was by race, and it was by all these different things, and yet we could connect in literature. We were more alike than we would give ourselves credit for. And then I go to Germany, and I'm in a room of people that look exactly like me and probably are now, you know, middle class like I am, and they say, why would a woman drink to herself to death? And I think that's the huge question. That is the question. But, you know, they're so logical. They can't relate to the characters in any way, right? They don't have that adversity. And so you've got to just meet the reader, wherever the reader is. You, you know, you can't, can't control it. Are you ready to answer some questions sure. from the audience? Yeah. <laughs> you still have to stay over there, though. Okay. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and event. Um, it's so nice to hear another queer author here, especially in Florida, under this particular context. Um, so my question is in reference to something you mentioned earlier, which is maybe the disappearance or erasure or neglect of certain texts from the queer canon mm -hmm. that like, perhaps aren't as kind of class-privileged or class-mobile or class-aspirational as like, the ones we're often exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to know, like, you know, could you name a few? Like, what do you feel like are some of the texts that should be res like, recuperated from the past? Meaning, well, I'm not sure they've always been written yet, I think mm. is the thing. I'm not sure they always exist, but I think that's why people like Ocean Vuong are super important, because he's writing about queerness and, you know, as the son of an immigrant, Brandon Taylor uh, does a lot, although he writes about academia. He's still, the backstory is still comes from a place of a lack of privilege. Mm. And so... Those are, you know, Andrew McMillan, a British poet, um, just started his new book, but he's about to write about being queer and northern in England. Um, sorry, northern short, uh, shorthand sometimes for being working class because the north of England and Scotland have a lot of sympathy with each other. And so I think it's just about adding all of those voices because um, I always felt that growing up, a lot of what I read was white, middle-class queerness. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think about things that were so formative to me as a young man were, that I loved. I loved E.M. Forster. Uh, you know, I even loved uh, Tales of the City, Armistead Maupin. But there is a sexual exile. There's a mobility there. There's a professionalism. There's a, there's just, you know, there's a leaving your family behind. And sometimes we don't want to leave our families behind. Mm. Sometimes we want to stay where we are and claim our space in our communities. And, and so I think... That's just why the call for more voices. Um, so Shuggy Vane has stuck with me. So if you're worried about your characters leaving people, <laughs> thank you. Never, that'll never happen. Thank you. I want to ask you about the cover of Shuggy Vane. Can mm -hmm. you say something about that? And I, I, I didn't realize that there could be more than one. So I'm referring to the one with the, the boy and his reaching for his mom in the bed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was actually. Um, the cover of Shuggy Bane, I've been really lucky. I've been blessed with my publishers where they've asked for my input on that, I think because I come from the visual arts world. And that is a photo that was stuck with me when I was actually writing the book. It's a photo taken by a war photographer called, sorry, Peter Marlowe. And he's normally known for taking battlefield images, but that's a photo of his own wife and his son on a Sunday morning. 
And when I saw it, I thought it captured everything I was trying to say about Shuggy's intense love for Agnes. I think, you know, children, the way they look at their mothers is such a powerful thing. And I thought that the image made this love heart where he's sort of holding her, the back of her head, I think he, or he's got his arm around her. So you've got the bottom of the heart and then you've got the two heads, but he's just looking at her so intensely. And that was everything I'd wanted to say with the book. I thought that was the universal part of it. In the United Kingdom, it's a really famous photograph called the Easter House Crucifixion. Um, and it's a boy in a housing scheme in Glasgow, which actually, if you look at it, I would say you would think it was taken in the 40s because it looked like things were a bit bombed out. It was taken in the 90s. It was taken after I set my book. But the boy's clearly in some kind of impoverished state and he's climbed a washing pole and he's sort of like looking out over the scheme that he lives in and he has such hope in his eyes, but it's a very famous um, Scottish image. But yeah, there's different covers in different countries uh, often. So yeah, it's wild. <laughs> uh, the question from the, the reader was, can I talk about Agnes being a proud woman? Yeah, I pride was an integral part of my community in my childhood. I think people often mistake that when you don't have very much, you might be... Uh, you know, you might be in a tough time or a little bit grubby, but I actually found the opposite to be true. I found that pride and shame were so interlinked um, that actually the less we had, the more effort um, my mother and the women in my community put into making us look like a million dollars because they were concealing something. When you think about it, actually, it's quite sad. I mean, I think of it as a, as a testament to strength, but actually for them, I think there was a little bit of shame in it as well. They couldn't ever afford to look like the, you know, you have to have a certain amount of money to look shabby, right? And then be comfortable with that. You have to, you know, that's really the, the haunt of the middle class where you can sort of go about and, you know, but when you're working class, and I write about this in Young Mungo, and I think a lot about clothing as a clothing designer, but when you don't have very much, you have to present your face to the world. But pride was something that was really important to the characters in the book and important to the community. And it was, a, it was really seen as um, just a way of having strength. But I also knew it to be this facade sometimes that could conceal things. And it's also a universal truth and it's a timeless truth that one of the things Agnes goes through is she has this um, huge uh, sort of this real strength of pride, she really looks amazing all the time and, and she presents herself like nothing's going on while she's disintegrating on the inside. And I find this even true today that when people do that, you sometimes want to knock them down. You want to know why should you feel like you're better than all of us? Why should you feel so proud? And that's something that's still true today. I've seen it happen in fashion. I've seen it happen in the corporate environment. And what happens to Agnes is that actually her pride separates her from the women around her because she has nothing in her purse. There's no money in her wallet. She is a Catholic mother like the rest of them and actually she's suffering. And yet she has this audacity of self-worth, right? So she has self-worth and she's going to project it. She's too big for the screen. And when people do that, it's a very human thing to want to pick at that and be like, who does she think she is? Um, I think I understood that you said that Shuggy was your first book, but when did you realize that writing could be something, a, a, a good way for you to express yourself and work stuff out? I mean, yeah. did you write as a kid? I didn't. I didn't actually read a book till I was about 17. 
And so, you know, it ties into the conversation about pride earlier, but we were a community that didn't turn to books. I don't feel especially sorry about that. I know I'm standing in a bookstore talking to readers, but it was just life. I had no context. I didn't know that that was unusual or strange. And, you know, it didn't make me or the boys around me any less creative or compassionate or curious. It just meant books weren't for us. The literary culture at the time was very focused in England, very focused in London, and it wasn't really talking to our communities. And so I was about 17 or 18 before I had an English teacher that really took me under his wing and gave me books. And it was because I finally had peace in my life. I had peace for two reasons. The first reason was, unfortunately, my mother died, and so I wasn't reckoning with her addiction. But the second was, is of the 250 kids that were in my year at school, only 12 came back after we turned 16. And so school emptied out for me in a really strange, peculiar way. I, it was a school at quite a deprived area, but it meant that suddenly I had peace in my environment where I could focus. And I had an English teacher, actually, my last year of studying English, I was the only student in the class. And he, it was terrible for, I think, a lot of the other, it's not necessarily a thing of shame, I think something I should clarify is a lot of the kids went and just wanted jobs, they wanted to find a trade, they had to earn a living, I don't know what was going on at home, but school wasn't, you know, even in my own family, I'm the first kid in my family, the first person in my family to finish high school, because my siblings did the same thing, you know, they, it was... It was very noble to go learn a trade or get an apprenticeship or find work. That's just what the community was. But at 17, I discovered Thomas Hardy, and there's Tess in Agnes Bain, there's Jude in Leek Bain. I discover Tennessee Williams, there's Amanda Wingfield has stayed with me throughout my life, and you know, there's a bit of Blanche Dubois in Agnes's wildest moments. Um, but just all books start to come to me, but it's too late for me to study English, it's too late for me to think about academia. And so instead I go into textiles, which was a trade. It was a way to make a living. And so I'm 32 when I come around to write, and I write in secret for 10 years because I think, first of all, it's not very good. Uh, who wants to hear it? Uh, who's inviting me to do it? And um, yeah, I had to learn my craft. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about um, what's happened to Glasgow between then and now, and why do you think so? Well, I mean, I'm not a politician, I can give it a go. I'm not a politician or a city planner, but I mean, Glasgow, like most industrialized cities, has had a certain amount of rejuvenation. And so it's a city that looks very beautiful today, and there's a lot more opportunity there. Um, it's most of the housing, the failed housing projects and schemes, like the one I grew up in, Site Hill, has been torn down and replaced by something else. Sometimes it's a water park, sometimes it's uh, new housing for people. So it's a city on the upswing, on the rejuvenation. But I was actually in a, uh, in a conversation with uh, the First Minister of Scotland the other, the other week, and we were talking about this, and the question in the audience was, do you think you could write Shuggy Bain today? And the answer is, is actually, I think I could write a very different book to Shuggy Bain, but I think addiction's much darker and stickier. I think people now suffer not only with alcoholism, but they suffer with drugs. There's a methadone crisis in Scotland. And I think also poverty is a different thing. I think I, my generation was the last of the organized working class in a way because Thatcher dismantled the unions. And so that sense of solidarity and uh, collective bargaining really started to come apart then. And now poverty, I think, leaves a lot of people feeling isolated. And so the book could still be written. Uh, it would just be slightly different. So I grew up in inner city Chicago and housing projects. Uh, mother also dropped out of 
high school when she was 15 because she was pregnant and because of drugs. Um, so as someone who grew up around just poverty and addiction, you know, my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, all beautiful women who were just stricken by this disease, um, I really resonated with Shuggy Bane um, when I read it over this endless pandemic. Um, and something I kept thinking about was there was just there was a lot of intimacy there, but there was like I had never growing up fatherless and growing up in such a hyper masculine space and a toxically masculine space, I never really experienced intimacy with another man. Mm -hmm. Like even my brother, like, you know, we never hugged each other. Like we even shook hands the way I shook hands with everyone else in the neighborhood. And we've never actually hugged each other until I visited Chicago a month ago. And so for me, I always, you know, I was always deemed as like soft, too emotional. So I would find outlets through film, through music. And, you know, I would constantly watch the same films. My mother would come into the room, why the hell are you still watching this thing? <laughs> and so I, I'm curious, like, did you, like, are those, those showcases of intimacy, both in Shuggy Bane, that sounds like in Young Mungo, there's a lot of intimacy between men. Are those reflections of what you've experienced? Or are you filling in the void from your own life that you didn't get to experience and that you didn't get to showcase? That is a most excellent question. Thank you. Yes, I'm filling in blanks. Um, it wasn't, you know, I was close to my brother, but I wouldn't ever say we were affectionate. I wouldn't say we ever allowed ourselves to do that. And even in young Mungo, you'll see the young lovers at the heart of the book, can't, Mungo and James, can't almost be affectionate with each other without roughhousing first or without taunting each other or without somebody trying to get power on the other one. Because I think oftentimes young working class men aren't taught how to be tender. You know, we don't necessarily see it from the men in our lives and we don't get to see it represented in media if you're queer at that time. And so they're fumbling towards it. Also, a lot of the tenderness I experienced as a boy was through sports. I realized that sports were often a proxy for uh, being allowed to touch another man, whether that was hugging or celebrating or just being at the bottom of a scrum or being kicked, like whatever it was. You know, I wasn't big into football, but I did like it when everybody fell on top of you. Um, you know, there were different things, but the truth is, is there's not. I think, I think about touch a lot because I come from textiles and textiles really influences my writing. I think about tactile and sensory experiences and, and I think also care is how we show uh, we love someone truly, if you can care for someone, if you can really just look after them, that's the most sincere form of love. But, but no, I'm, I'm making up a lot of this sort of male affection. Uh, when you began to write at 32 and, and, and started out to learn your craft, what writers did you turn to? Uh, what books did you open to kind of see how it was done and, and what was helpful to you? Actually, when I first began to write, I wanted to be either Cormac McCarthy or Toni Morrison or James Joyce. And, and I was a really shitty example of all of them. And I had to throw out a lot of my writing because I wasn't finding my own voice. And so there's been writers throughout my life that have had a huge influence on me in books. I thought, God, I wish I could do that. I think about Scottish writers like Alan Warner. I think about, you know, I spoke about Cormac McCarthy, Thomas Hardy. And Shuggy Bane's quite a classical novel, which is the, the strange thing about it. You know, it's not an especially postmodern novel or a modern novel. It's quite a timeless book. 
But I had to almost uh, just discover my own voice in that space, and I realized that actually that's the that was the best way to do it. And what I what I really relied on for myself was my powers of observation coming from the visual arts world to create a very immersive experience for the reader. I thought even if I didn't know. Um, how the craft of my world was, just explain it very clearly, and that'll bring the readers into it. So as soon as I stopped trying to be someone else or someone I admired is when it started to hum for me. Do you consider your writing is redemptive? Yeah, I'm an optimist, and I think love is always redemptive, and because I'm writing about the love between the characters, they're offered redemption at the end. But I write a lot about hope, um, but my hope is not a bright sunrise. I think oftentimes in literature it's a very obvious thing when it enters the frame, um, and I think sometimes people don't live with that type of hope. We don't all get that bright sun moment. And I think what is much more hopeful are people who have a quiet strength, who have the ability to keep getting up day after day after day over time. And I think Shuggy's an incredibly hopeful kid. And I think, I don't know if you've read the book, but I think his ability to keep coming back to his mother and thinking, even when his siblings say to him, she's never going to get better, and him to be like, no, that's not true, she is. It, like there's an enormous there's an enormous hope there and then the end of the book I think you know um, there's a hope there for him too he finally has a friend but I think hope can be a quiet thing and I think love can be the love there is redemptive I think the friendship he has with Leanne um, is going to save his life I have a question about your use of language yeah. um, it's the first time reading both of your novels I think it's the first time I've ever seen the language of my childhood mm. reflected on the page mm. Irvin Welsh, for example, is too, is, is too much yeah. in terms of my experience of speaking English growing up in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, I, I, I wonder whether my ability to connect with the novel was heightened by the fact that I understood some of the words that mm -hmm. you use. I mean, I said to my husband as I was reading Young Mungo, have you ever, how do you spell bism? <laughs> you know, there were certain words that I'd never actually seen written down but use all the time in the way that I speak. And... I was wondering whether when you're producing the novel for foreign audiences, whether there had been any discussions with editors and the like about including a glossary at the end to help to help the Americans understand <laughs> how we speak. Actually, that's an excellent question. I just did an event in Bath this week and there was a woman, it was in England, uh, but there was an American woman at the front of it and she was really excited to ask a question I thought it was going to be great. You know, she was so keen and her hand up into the air and she says, Congratulations on your book being translated into 38 languages. My question is, when will it be translated into English? And the room did not enjoy that. Um, and so, and I love to tell that story when I was in Scotland. The, so the truth is, is no, I never thought about a glossary. And in fact, I have to say, I had the real support of my American editor when I wrote the book because there were some sentences I thought maybe a, someone who doesn't speak Scots would have a tough time with it. And he said, no, that's the power of the book. Readers are curious, and I always believe that. And, and dialectic dialogue as well. Once you hear the song of it, I can understand a Southern American accent once I'd see it on the page and you get the rhythm of it. Never been to the south of North America, so how can I do that? And so you just wait till you hear the song, and then you can you can hear the chorus. But the truth is, is I think part of the reason why the book had such a tough road to publication was because of the language. And you know, when my agent was sending the book out, she said, "When you get rejected, do you want to hear?" 
And I said, yes, please, it'll make me a better writer. Let me, let me hear. And really quickly, I was rejected 20 times. And then the night that I won the Booker, the first question that a journalist asked me was after, you know, after their very first question is, they give you a seven minute break and they're like, what did you do to celebrate? And you're like, nothing, I'm still sitting where you found me. But the first question that a journalist asked me was they said, tell me about rejection. And I said, well, you know, it was hard to get published. I was, I was rejected 20 times. And my agent cut in and she said, it was 44 times. Uh, I just stopped telling you. You weren't, you weren't as big a man as you thought you were. And I thought, oh, I thought I'd taken it. I thought I'd bought it with grace. But no. And so the language was, was hard. But like I'd said to the other reader a minute ago, I wrote it for Agnes and for Shuggy, and it's not hard for them. Well, Douglas, I don't know in the 40 years that this room has quite had the experience that we've had tonight. You've been amazing. You Thank you so much. So generous and with such grace. So thank you, thank you, oh, thank, thank you. you. And I also want to thank Connie. Yes. You know, Connie, one of the great, great readers that we have. And I want to thank Gael, the great Gael. Thank you.